trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to yet another exercise in wrong think. By the way, I want to thank each of you who have taken the time to uh, to basically tell a friend, let them know that this program is around, where they can find it, where they can listen to the podcast at their leisure. And of course, uh, I encourage you when you visit me on my website, thebrianhideshow.com, there is a feature right at the end of the show notes where you can leave a comment. And I see more and more people starting to take advantage of this. Um, I, I love the constructive feedback. I love that uh, there are those who will, will tell me, Brian, you're full of it. No, I really do. Because uh, I think you, you have to you have to be a good enough friend to tell somebody they're full of it. You know, the, the people who won't ever tell you that you're full of it, they're not really your friends. And I hope by that same token, when you hear me talk about things that push against the limits of your comfort zone... You understand that I'm not doing that as an enemy. Your enemy wouldn't tell you things that uh, that might actually, you know, need to be addressed. But your friend would, even if it meant risking, you know, uh, some discomfort in the process. I'm kind of paraphrasing something that Solzhenitsyn said once upon a time about I speak to you as a friend and, and the same kind of thing. Your enemy wouldn't tell you these things, but I will. So, here's a, here's a couple of the things on tap for this hour. And by the way, phone lines are open, 801-331-8113, if you'd like to weigh in. I don't know if you're feeling imposed upon with all the different, uh, you know, lockdown proposals. It's, it's crazy. I'll, this is the crazy part. Look, COVID cases have been on the rise. I think that's to be expected. Partly because we're in cold and flu season. This is a time when normally we see more and more people being um, sick or, you know, indoors and congregating indoors where it's easier to get infected. Of course, with COVID, there has been a lot more testing going on, which to me makes sense. That then, yeah, you would see more positive tests. But unfortunately, People in positions of authority are taking this as, well, this is proof that, you know, we we just didn't lock down hard enough. And the crazy thing is they don't seem to make the connection that no matter how hard they locked down before, it didn't stop or didn't slow the spread of the virus. And when you look at uh, different places, whether it's different countries or just different states or cities or areas that, uh, that locked down versus those that didn't, you're pretty hard pressed to find any proof or anything that would indicate that, yeah, the ones who didn't lock down, they're the ones that are suffering. More often than not, it doesn't matter. Now, we have an added problem here, too. We're going to talk about this, a great article by John Miltimore. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom has apologized for, uh, what did he do? He and and a bunch of other leaders uh, got together and ignored their own mandates they had a they had a big birthday party at some posh French restaurant in Napa Valley. 
And he the governor says, well, when I arrived, I was a little bit late. Other guests were already seated and, and he joined them, which means he violated his own coronavirus or, order. That order that limits gatherings to no more than three separate households. Now, he's not the only one who's done this. In my home state of Utah, there are plenty of pictures, even videos of Governor Gary Herbert dancing around with people, not social distancing, not wearing a mask. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Spencer Cox, same thing, depending on the the setting. They're out there just, you know, interacting with people just like normal. But boy, are they wagging the finger at us and telling us you have to do it this way. Here's the difference. In Gavin Newsom's case. The restrictions that he has imposed on people would send them to jail if an average person were caught doing it. What what happened to him? I mean, he's caught. He admits it. He's actually apologized. Well, I'm sorry. (laughs) You caught me. And that's supposed to suffice. Okay, so here's here's the bottom line. Then I'm going to get to a phone call here. Look. Politicians are sitting here fretting and wondering and wagging their fingers. Steve Sisolak in, in Nevada telling us it's only irresponsible behavior that spreads this virus. Yeah, that was three days before he was diagnosed with COVID. It's not irresponsible behavior. People who are doing everything right may still get the virus. But how can you expect us to set our lives aside, our livelihoods, put them on hold to subject ourselves to financial ruin or despair or depression when you don't even follow your own mandates. You've heard the saying, you know, I, I can't hear what you're saying because your actions are drowning out your words. And these politicians' actions are telling us everything we need to know about their mandates and why, hey, if it's, if it's so lame that even they can ignore them, we ought to be able to ignore them as well. All right, I'm going to hop off the soapbox. Let's go to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hello there. When's the next rally at the Capitol? To, uh, Haven't heard. You know, let's, let's get one going. I mean, there's all this testing. and I mean, I'm getting tired of talking about it. I'm exhausted. I uh, can, can I be honest with you, Rob? I don't know if a rally is going to cut it for me. I want to do something far more radical. You ready for this? Yeah. I just want to go ahead and live my life like a normal person, meaning I want to have family come and join us for Thanksgiving. And I'm not going to make a big production about it. We're not going to invite the TV cameras to come and film. We're just going to do it. If I want to go interact with friends, I'm going to do it. And that doesn't mean I'm going to be reckless about it, but I'm just going to. Uh, for those friends who say, look, that's too much risk. Great. We'll video chat. But I am ready to just start living my life normally and in every way possible become an unplayable piece on the chessboard of whomever thinks they're calling the shots. I think that's all fine and dandy. That's all great in theory. But I would like these politicians and all these people, these naysayers, or or the people that are trying to impose, let's, let's, let's focus on them, the people that are trying to impose these rules, mandates, all these, all these restrictions, because that's what they are. It's restrictions on us. Let them see the numbers of people that are sick and tired of it and are not going to comply. Because, well, I mean, I'm suggesting the same thing, but what I'm suggesting is at the individual level. They will see me as I'm out and about living my life. 
I'm not going to go do an organized rally because all they want to do then is, you know, look at this, more irresponsible behavior, another super spreader event. They try to use it for their advantage. There's no way they can use for their advantage me out there living my life and just simply doing whatever, regardless of what they have said. That's that's all fine. and That's all makes sense. I mean, but you're not being you're not being seen as a whole slew of thousands of people. I mean, this, this, these restrictions are just, it's out of control, the stuff that they're trying to pull. I mean, the testing is, you, you're still going to get the bronchitis. You're still going to get the flu. Yeah. you got to, the old, you've got to build your immune system up. You've got to get rest. I mean, I just went through it. Even, when, even when people gather, though. I mean, look at, look at the news footage coming out of Germany today. Tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people gathering on the streets to protest their government, locking them down even harder. And what's the government's response? Oh, my goodness. Look at these people. No, they put water cannon on them. They treat them like rioters. You know what? That's 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 then those people need to go and get that government and rip them out like a weed in the garden. That's an unwanted weed. And you've got to rip them out of the soil. That's how you take care of the business. It seems it seems like that plays into the hands of the government saying, "See, we told you these people are dangerous," and then escalating and using force. Yesterday. I got that part. I got that part. You guys were talking about that yesterday. But let them see what they want to see. Let them get what they want to get. Because you know, it comes to the point where you can't talk anymore. You can't. You know, like your your one buddy there was talking. He was talking about waiting ten years to get this resolved or to, or figure out the plan and you know mend it in twenty years down the road. Now he he was he was talking specifically about affecting change within the political system. So I, I want to make that distinction. But I'm not well, I'm not willing to about, wait. You guys were talking about how intelligent the Communist Party was, as far as like Hillary Clinton talking about how they, she can impose a plan on redoing the health care structure, and it takes ten years. It's going to take a ten year process. I don't got ten years. I'm not going to waste ten years of my life with these peons. Okay, the, the American people are a bunch of peons because you you got a guy, Fauci, Dr. Fauci, who should have been able to, was being paid with the world through the CDC to to be able to go through all the countries in the world. He had the best paycheck going. The whole organization did, especially from the United States. $400 million we were paying them. He should have been able to nail it in China. But you know what? He was on the take from China. So now the, the American people 10 months down the road are still listening to this, this dimwit? Only the ones who are afraid. And what I'm saying is, I'm not going to live as someone who's afraid. Now, if somebody wants to follow my example, that's great. But more than just a rally that takes place and then is done in a matter of hours, I'm ready to move forward with the rest of my life as a statement of it can be done. Thanks for the call, Rob. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Before I go any further, I want to share a couple of uh, statistics here from Jeffrey Tucker from the American Institute for Economic Research. And this is an article he wrote about how Americans are finally growing weary of lockdowns. Right? You didn't need an article to tell you that because you're probably one of them. But the question remains, what do we do about it? And, you know, if Rob, if you want to go do a, a rally, I say go for it 
I have been to a number of rallies. Um, it, it's clear to me that th- there's a disconnect. The political class doesn't care. The media is trying to spin it as well. Look at these people, these radicals and whatnot. They're going to say what they're going to say. I'm thinking something has to be done. And, and this is just my opinion that that shows that they've lost their grip. They don't have the power that they once had in the other hour of my show. I share a really remarkable essay. It's a letter to her future grandchildren from Bertine Schaefer. And it is fantastic because she's she's writing it as if she's from inside a cult. And, you know, it's funny. I've had this conversation with a couple of friends today. You know, some people are like, well, you know, people could call your church a cult if, if you look at some of the criteria here. It's possible. Yes, it's true. No, I mean, but in particular, the cult that, that uh, much of our society has has embraced or the thinking, the cultish thinking that is embraced involves uh, adoration of and and adherence to a particular leader. And that leader could take the form of the governor. It could take the form of Dr. Fauci. It could take the form of, you know, somebody else. But it's it's almost always people in authority. And so this is Bertine Schaefer writing to her grandchildren, who, by the way, are not even born yet. I think her son is like 13 years old, but she's she's explaining to them. Here's where we find ourselves in 2020. Here are the mistakes we made. And here's what you need to know to keep you from making the same mistake in the future. And I'm just going to hit a couple of the bullet points that she shares. Several of these are just dead on accurate. One of them is do not put your trust in entities that are founded in coercion and that demand a monopoly on the use of violence. Now, I'm going to push on some people's comfort zone here a little bit. I don't know if you saw recently one of the TV stations in Salt Lake City recently did a little story on, oh, look, the Utah Department of Transportation is doing another click it or ticket campaign. And they had these cute little characters to remind you to click it or ticket or, you know, the police are going to give you a ticket. And I thought, isn't coercion fun? Can it be a fun thing? Because that's what they're trying to mask is the fact that they're using coercion and the state's monopoly on violence to force people to wear their seatbelts. Now, I don't care. It's a good idea to wear your seatbelt. I get that. But to bring coercion into the equation is wrong. It's immoral. So Bertine Schaefer's dead on accurate when she says, do not put your trust in entities founded in coercion and that demand a monopoly on the use of violence. This next one is going to sting. She says, do not ever let such entities be in charge of educating your children. Yeah. She says, do whatever you can, in fact, to ensure that such entities are not able to function in the world at all. Now, I'm going to interpret what that means to me is make yourself an unplayable piece on their chessboard. No, you can't escape it perfectly. There are some built in things like taxes and 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 other things where where you're going to find government is going to enter enter insert itself into your life. Okay, without your driver's license, you can't open a bank account without your vehicle. You can't be autonomous and move around. And yet they're going to they're going to try to attach themselves like a parasite at every one of those points. However, there is an awful lot you and I can do to reduce our governmental footprint. And it starts with you stop asking permission for things that you really shouldn't be asking permission for in the first place. 
and for the most part, just live your life. Live it like a free man or woman would live their life, meaning you don't go harming other people, you don't use force, you don't use fraud, but you don't let government dictate things like, well, you can't have Thanksgiving, or you can only have it under these circumstances. That's your choice. That's your decision. They don't know enough about your situation to say, well, maybe, uh, maybe this year we ought to be careful. Because frankly, if you have someone in your family, say, for instance, who was tested positive for COVID, maybe the best thing to do would be to not gather everybody together. But see, that's common sense. You didn't need somebody with a badge and a gun backing up some bureaucrat telling you and wagging their finger. Now, don't you do this. They enjoy a false sense of status, and it persists because we continue to treat them as if their opinion matters. It doesn't. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's the attitude you're going to have to take if you want to become an unplayable piece on their chessboard. Bertine Schaefer tells her future grandchildren, if you ever find yourself in the midst of a cult, you might be tempted to blame the cult members for this predicament. And this is good advice. She says, don't. It's not worth the effort. Focus your attention where it's most needed, on the source of the problem. And remember that that source only gets more powerful when those under it are busy fighting each other. This is why I'm not uh, encouraging you go out there and confront people at the store who are wearing masks or go out there and, you know, pick a fight with people or or chant or whatever. You're not going to change their minds. And worse, that tribal back and forth takes your attention and their attention off where the real problem is. People in authority who are who have assumed powers that are not theirs to exercise. Power that can be negated by people finding the courage to just simply say, no, thanks. Or nah, bro, (laughs) I got this. All right. This is the last suggestion from Bertine Schaefer. And again, this is the one that to me opens the door to reclaiming your life. She says, fight with everything you have against any attempts to control information or speech and beat into the ground until it is bloody and tattered. The idea that truth is something given to us by authority figures rather than something we are capable of discerning for ourselves. Look, I know people. My dear old gray-haired mama is one of these people who will sit and watch the television endlessly, watching the case count, watching the reports. You know people like this, too. They just, they they hover over everything. Well, what are are the latest COVID numbers? Because they're waiting for someone in authority to tell them what is the truth. Have you figured it out yet? At the risk of, you know, sounding pedantic, can I just tell you what, what the deal is? These people in authority are fudging the numbers or inflating the numbers or sensationalizing the numbers for their own benefit. They're not telling you the truth. They're exaggerating things or they're limiting information or they're limiting uh, a context and, and perspective that could help you actually make an informed decision. You don't need them. Truth is not something given to you by authority figures. It's something you are absolutely capable of digging in and learning and ascertaining for yourself. So why don't you do it? By the way, this is something that is starting to take hold among a lot of people. 
The question is how quickly, right? Jeffrey Tucker talks about, uh, where is the chart here? Here we go. A majority of Americans continue to say better advice for healthy people is to stay home to prevent the spread of virus. Now, that may sound bad on the surface, like, oh, my gosh, they're still clinging to it. But listen to this. Back in March, at the height of the COVID fear, 87% of Americans said, yeah, it's probably better for healthy people to stay home than try to live a normal life. That number now has fallen to 64%. Now, that's still an awful lot of people, right? We've got our work cut out for us. But from 87% to 64%, you've got a lot of people who have concluded that, hey, enough. It's moving in the right direction. They understand you don't have to shut down your life just because someone in authority is saying so. At least I see that as good news. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I know I'm, I'm very impassioned today, and, and I feel like it's because I feel like it's because I have been guided into some, some really significant truths. And unfortunately, these are not all my truths. In fact, uh, most of these are coming from other sources, but I am so happy to be in a position to pass them along to you. I think they're worth considering. I want to go back again to this article by Jeffrey Tucker. This is about the the shift that shows Americans are starting to grow weary of these lockdowns. It's a substantial shift in the direction and pace of change is also noticeable. Now, there's a poll from Gallup. The first question concerns compliance with a possible new mandate to shelter in place. Now, again, I want you to think back at the height of the pandemic back in March and April. 67% of Americans said they would be compliant with a stay-at-home order. That's now down to 49%. In fact, one-third of Americans said they are very or somewhat unlikely to comply with such an order. Back in March, only 15% of Americans told pollsters that. That is real progress. And there's another 18% who report being somewhat likely to comply. People are starting to find their courage. And for good reason. I mean, Dr. Scott Atlas, I don't know if you heard this last week. He suggested in passing that uh, Michigan residents rise up against the new lockdowns in Michigan. I think the way he put it was he said, look, folks, this stuff ends when you rise up. Now, that's all he said. Would you care to guess how the, the major media took that? Oh, yeah, they clutched their chest and they, you know, had a bad case of the vapors and they were they were just sure he was encouraging people to go engage in violence. Why is that where their mind always goes? Why do they think for someone to say, look, this stops when you rise up? Can people not rise up peaceably? I think we've seen a lot of people do it. Heck, I've been a part of a number of the rallies where people have rose up peaceably and said, we're tired of this. But they actually, you know, the media went into collective shock. They forced him to clarify, I don't mean, you know, to rise up violently. That is crazy. As Jeff Tucker points out here, he says, look, 
In 2020, Americans discovered that governments were capable of impositions on private and commercial life that are without precedent. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the legislatures and courts did not protect us. This fight for a restoration of normal life, he says, will come down to public opinion. And that in turn will happen once an alternative view of public health competes with media falsehoods. And he says it's long past time to rise up. Now, I just happen to be of the opinion that uh, one of the ways that you can convince people without even having to use your words is simply live your life without fear. If that means you go around without your mask, then do it. If that means that you have your family over for Thanksgiving and you have a wonderful Christmas in spite of all the finger wagging and warnings, then do it. It gets a little tougher, though, for the business owners, right? Because your your business licensure is is now uh, in some part dependent on your compliance. Although I like something that Eric uh, Peters had suggested on this program several weeks back, maybe a few months ago. Maybe it's time for us to uh, to re uh, reinvigorate the Samizdat businesses, the underground businesses that will take care of people. Kind of like a speakeasy used to take care of people. Look, it's purely voluntary. Nobody's harming or otherwise committing fraud. All they're doing is just refusing to seek government permission for something they already have a perfect right to do. Caller, welcome to the show. Yeah, Brian, I just wanted a, a little bit of a rebuttal from before, but always remember, when the government fears the people, that's liberty. And when the people fear the government, that's tyranny. Period. Yeah. No disagreement. Okay. No, I, I, I completely agree. Okay. I, I, you know, thanks for clarifying. I'm, I'm not sure we're, we're, we're not in agreement here. All right. Here's something else that uh, that I wanted to share with you. This is uh, this was a really interesting article by Robin Kerner. I found this on the Foundation for Economic Education's website. Half of politics is the refusal to be imposed upon. Now, I don't know if you feel imposed upon, but I am guessing that uh, maybe you do. Robin Kerner says one of the most interesting aspects of political psychology concerns the gap between the reasons people give for their political opinions and the real causes of their holding those opinions. He says typically that gap generates one another, that between the content of the arguments a person makes for her political position and the real motivation for her holding that position. Recent work in moral and political philosophy indicates that the moral drives that cause people to favor various policies can be understood as lying on a few axes, such as care versus harm, justice versus injustice, or liberty versus oppression. The first of these pairs is universally favored, but people weigh these axes differently. These moral axes or dimensions provide an incredibly powerful framework for understanding and communicate with those who hold views that differ from one's own, as they can be used to think and, more importantly, to feel like them. So Robin Kerner says the moral philosophy of political progressives, for example, tends to be dominated by the care versus harm axis. A progressive will likely react to harm inflicted on a perceived victim more strongly than to any other aspects of the situation, such as the extent to which the perceived victim might have been responsible for creating that situation. A libertarian, in contrast, would react just as strongly to the perceived rights violation of an individual, even when others would regard that violation as entirely justified by a reduction of greater harm elsewhere. 
Now, such moral instincts particularly come into play when we're standing back to consider policies in general and or situations that involve other people. Obviously, though, when we feel that a policy or situation affects us directly, we have an even more immediately felt visceral reaction that precedes any conscious thinking about what's going on. Now, I want you to consider what uh, Robin is saying here in the context of uh, how you react to, oh, I don't know, election results or something. When we feel directly affected or threatened by a policy, whether we truly are or not, we react instantly and preconsciously. A little introspection reveals what drives many or perhaps most of such reactions. And that is, it's a fundamental human instinct that is quite independent of matter or situation that's being reacted to. This instinct may even be psychological or may even be psychologically explained for about half of all the positions taken on all political issues. And this is how Robin uh, Kerner states it. One side and sometimes both sides of most political disputes are a refusal to be imposed upon. I mean, that makes sense, right? Now, he gives some really interesting examples here. None of us want to be imposed upon. This refusal or this really strong resistance might be implicit or explicit, and the imposition may be imagined or real. But in any case, it typically drives at least one side of the many of the very many contentious political arguments, and it's a basic element of human nature. Its power is obvious to anyone who considers for a moment how they're likely to react to being made to do something in any aspect of their life, even something they usually enjoy. Moreover, we've all had the experience of feeling so much less motivated to do a task when it's required of us, maybe as part of our job, than we feel about the very same task done out of choice in pursuit of our own ends. And he gives a list here, some of the greatest political issues of recent times. Gay marriage, in a world where almost everyone can experience the emotional and legal benefits of marrying the person they love, being denied that opportunity feels like an imposition, albeit a negative one in the form of a denial. Abortion. The pro-choice position is a refusal to be told what one may and may not do with one's body. Taxation. The anti-tax position is a refusal to have one's property taken. Health care. Those against the Affordable Care Act were largely motivated by a refusal to be told what one may and may not have in the way of health insurance and services. Education. Those for more forms of public education and or private education and or homeschooling resist the imposition of a single curriculum or worldview on their children. How about immigration? If you're an immigrant, you're more likely to favor open borders because you don't want to be denied your chance to live where you choose. If you're for control of immigration, you'd likely regard the ability to choose who comes into your space, your home, your country as a natural right, the disrespecting of which is therefore an imposition. Race relations. To be treated less favorably for any, than anyone else for any reason is an imposition to be resisted. Gun rights, having someone take your guns from you, is an imposition. Free speech, to be prevented from speaking one's truth, is an imposition. Now there's more to this article, but the next time you're in a political argument, take a moment to step back and ask yourself whether it's you or your opponent or maybe both of you who were really motivated by that fundamental human desire just to be left alone. That single question can quickly unlock breakthroughs on communication on issue after issue. And the important takeaway, too, is if you want to avoid it, 
don't bring government force into a situation or an issue where it isn't needed. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. One final thought here before I step off the uh, the outrage here for a moment. Um, just want to give a couple quick excerpts from this article from John Miltimore about uh, Governor Gavin Newsom apologizes for breaking his own COVID rules for which other Californians could have gone to jail. And he gives some very solid evidence, as in this is not just, hey, the governor's, you know, getting away with murder. It's like, no, look, the governor goes to this swanky French restaurant for a birthday party, breaking his own rules. And then gets up on TV and says, oh, man, look, we're all human. We all fall short sometimes. And then starts in with the wear a mask, slow the spread, blah, 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 blah. Now, look, on the one hand, he points out, John Miltimore says, look, uh, Newsom's apology is refreshing. Time and again during the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen politicians defend their actions when they've been caught violating their own restrictions. Mayor Beetlejuice, we're looking your direction. I need exercise to be able to stay healthy and make decisions, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio explained when it was discovered he was going to the gym while forbidding millions of New Yorkers to do so. And the examples go on and on. Now, on the other hand, Newsom's apology doesn't cut it because Newsom is apologizing because he got caught. And John Miltimore says, I think it's safe to assume that no apology would have been forthcoming had knowledge of his hypocrisy remained a secret. Second, despite his apology, Newsom engaged in much of the same gov-splaining that uh, Lori Lightfoot and Bill de Blasio did. It was in the orange status, relatively loose compared to some other counties. It was one of the early reservations. We've been out, I think, for three times since February. Just three times! Yeah, all right, Governor. As Miltimore points out, he says, I'm sure many of the Californians fined and arrested for violating government restrictions had similar excuses. Remember the paddle border who in April was caught breaking the California Department of Public Health's restriction? He didn't get off with an apology, though he could have reasonably said, you know, I was all alone out in the ocean. He was arrested. And the L.A. Times reported he and other similar violators faced a fine of up to $1,000 and six months in jail. He wasn't the only person to face criminal charges. A pair of smoke shops, an electronic uh, retailer, and a shoe store, for example, also charged after being accused of refusing to shut down. And then he's got a tweet here from the Santa Cruz Police Department. Seven Californians fined for going out for a drink that was deemed non-essential. Seven of them, each getting a $1,000 ticket. And the police chief, Andy Mills, well, these visitors came to get some essential drinks. Essentially, they were all given $1,000 tickets for SIP violations. If you're not from Santa Cruz and you put our community at risk, you will get a ticket. (sighs) By the way, I'm not going to paint all cops with the same broad brush, but police like him and police who would enforce that are part of the problem. Thank heavens for those few that still have a conscience. But if they would enforce that and hand out those fines, they have chosen poorly. 
As John Miltimore says, the hundreds of thousands of restaurants and bars ordered closed by Newsom, they're not likely to get off with an apology if they're caught breaking the state's restrictions by one of Newsom's coronavirus strike teams. No, they would face shutdown. Now, he says, look, I don't begrudge Governor Newsom sitting down to celebrate the birthday of his political advisor. Sitting with friends to break bread and enjoy fellowship is actually perfectly natural and reasonable. But John Miltimore says what I begrudge is the expectation that others must sacrifice this and much more while life for Newsom continues relatively normally. Kind of puts the lie to phrases like we're in this together and we're all in the same boat. As you can clearly see, that's not true. Now, if you doubt this, take a look at the coverage that uh, South Dakota Governor Christy Noem received for not taking extreme measures. She's been turned into a cartoon villain by those lackeys in the press who want to, you know, claim that uh, she should have locked down. She should have taken more people's freedoms. We may not know for years, says John Miltimore, how many lives were sacrificed and how many hundreds of millions forced into extreme poverty by these inhumane interventions. But the fact that so many politicians continue to ignore their own mandates tells you all you need to know about them. Instead of apologizing for eating with family and friends at a birthday party in violation of his own restrictions, he says Newsom should apologize for the restrictions themselves and then immediately lift them. Hear, hear. All right. One last article here. This was just kind of a curiosity. Annie Holmquist has wonderful commentaries on culture on intellectualtakeout.org. This headline, new online mating sites skip the soulmate. Have you heard about this? She says boomer parents are frustrated by their lack of grandchildren. Meanwhile, millennials complain about lack of romantic partners. Well, never fear. Technology has provided a solution. No longer must millennials date to find the love of their life, marry and have children. Now they can shop online to find the perfect person to breed with before their biological clocks run out, leaving the door open to find another romantic partner later on. Platonic co-parenting is what The Guardian labels the emergence of so-called mating sites online. This trend seems like a bold, pioneering move for a new technological era, but its underlying reality seems to be a bizarre twist on traditional arranged marriages in which practical concerns prevail over romantic ones. Highlighting several couples who've tried platonic co-parenting, The Guardian paints a picture of individuals in their 30s joining matchmaking services not for romantic dates, but to find quality dad or mom material for their future child. Jenica Anderson and Stefan Duval are just one example. They connected on modamily.com, a website that provides a new way to family, and talked about whether each would make a good parent for their prospective child. Marriage and romantic fun weren't on the radar, Anderson said. I really didn't want a romantic connection. I thought it would convolute things. The two jumped right into the fray, asking deep questions about parenting styles and past life experiences. They spent a weekend together, and by the end of it, they returned to their lives, having found the person they wanted to parent with. Now, some platonic co-parents use test tubes. Anderson and Duvall did it the old-fashioned way, conceiving and giving birth to their daughter within a year. Anderson and Duvall did fall in love, but judging from the article, the two have not married. Others who found their parenting partner on modamily.com have hooked up with the, f- the person they want to parent with, but they're still open to finding someone else to be the love of their life. 
Now, Annie Holmquist says, I scratched my head as I read this story. On the one hand, it's great that people want to have children and they realize their biological clocks won't last forever. It's also good that they recognize that the person who makes a fabulous romantic partner might not always make the best parent. On the other hand, such a situation is downright messy. It seeks to give children a stable family, yet in birthing them out of, in birthing them out of wedlock into non-committal relationships that are open to outside romantic liaisons. Parents provide their offspring with increased likelihood of behavioral problems, lower academic performance, economic insecurity, and other issues. The parents, meanwhile, increase their own emotional baggage. While their heart is in the mature place of wanting to start a family, having children first and platonically co-parenting them while looking for another romantic partner seems like a decidedly immature move. She says, let's look at the story of Anderson and Duval again. They liked skipping the flirtation stage and jumping right into the deep questions. They looked at each other through the lens of what kind of parent would this person be, rather than what kind of sexual partner or soulmate would this person be. Now, these are the very questions every person considering marriage should be asking. In a strange sense, these people are returning to the original aim of, of marriage, to live as partners, raising the next generation, struggling together to survive in a difficult world. Yet because moderns have made marriage all about love and romance, these people are turning away from that motive and focusing on forming families, but without the sacred bonds of lifelong commitment. She says what people forget is that once the sparks are done flying, marriage is more about who will do the dishes, change dirty diapers, or spend long nights walking the floor with a colicky baby, or try to reason with a testy teenager. She has a quote here from J.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien, it is notorious that, in fact, happy marriages are more common where the choosing by the young person is even more limited by parental or family family authority. As long as there is a social ethic of plain, unromantic responsibility and conjugal fidelity. But even in countries where the romantic tradition has so far affected social arrangements as to make people believe that the choosing of a mate is solely the concern of the young. The young, rather, only the rarest good fortune brings together the man and woman who really are, as it were, destined for one another and capable of a very great and splendid love. And he says, if Tolkien were to speak to those young couples in the Guardian article, he would likely say they're headed in the right direction, but waiting in the weeds rather than walking the path. Marriage and family formation should put practicality first, worrying less about romance and more about the character and suitability of the intended spouse as a parent. If these individuals find a person whom they can see being a good father or mother for their child, well, then it's time to do something about it. Get married first, then get started on raising that family. Okay, it's an interesting article. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look. If you like it, feel free to share it among your friends. This is The Brian Hyde Show.